Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Laurie, your host, and so happy to be with you for this episode. I was figuring out what I wanted to do and decided it was a good time to go do a little bit of a draft update. We're in the middle of conference season, but far enough away from the start of it and close enough to the start of the NCAA tournament where we could go through all of that in one fell swoop. So I wanted to bring on Sam Vecini, longtime friend of the show, writer for the Sporting News, draft aficionado. And so we go through both the draft, the main guys at the top, and some of his favorite guys that have been rising, but also some NBA conversations, the Jaleel Okafor rumors to New Orleans, the Knicks stuff, and a few other ideas. So it's it's a, a nice little mix, and Sam is very knowledgeable about the NBA as well, so it was fun to get that part of the conversation as well. And this is a longer one, <laughs> it has, often happens with Sam and, Sam and I, and it runs a little less than two hours. We go in a lot of different directions, and we have three wonderful sponsors for the show. Movement Watches, which is a, a beautiful timepiece. You can check it out at mvmtwatches.com slash realgm. Audible, amazing audio service. I'm still going through Bruce Springsteen's autobiography. Audible.com slash try now for a free trial with an audiobook. And then ZipRecruiter. You can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan and post a job for free. So here's the conversation with Sam. Thanks so much for coming on. Of course, Danny. You know, I'm always happy to help out the great people at Real GM Radio and to help out you whenever you need a guest. I was watching part of the UCLA-Washington game before when we decided we were going to talk, but before we did. And Why? <laughs> well, because I, I think that I, I got a sense of something, which is that Part of what Markel Fultz was doing at the beginning of that game reminded me a lot of not Kentucky John Wall, but Washington John Wall in that early in John Wall's tenure with the Wizards, he focused a lot on being a point guard and making sure everybody else was involved, sometimes at the expense of his own offense. And I saw a little bit of that in Fultz. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it was interesting because you don't see it very often from guys with his talent. Yeah, he definitely... I think is trying to take to heart that he needs to get his teammates involved. The problem is all of his teammates suck. Like that's just the fact of the matter right now. Matisse Thibault is an interesting long-term draft prospect, but like none of these other guys are going to play NBA basketball by any stretch. It's a difficult situation. I mean, he went five for 10 on like pull up three pointers in this game. And uh, I think it says a lot that the best shot Washington can muster 10 times in a 75 possession game is a pull-up three-pointer that is probably contested for Markel Fultz. It's a bad team. It's a really bad situation. And uh, I'm impressed that he dropped 28 on UCLA, regardless of the situation. Right. And I've been struggling with ways to explain this recently, but point guard is not like quarterback, 
where it is purely a talent distribution position. I mean, there are quarterbacks in the NFL that are an exception to that. Cam Newton's a good one. You know, quarterbacks, they can run a little bit. They can create some offense outside of their passing. But mm-hmm. Tom Brady just won a Super Bowl, that sort of a thing. You know, they they can make players better. They can distribute it, but that's really their job. Point guard is a changing world because... There are pure ones that can do well. Ricky Rubio is one of those. But there are also players that succeed in different ways. And the guy I was thinking about in this, watching that say what the Wizards Cavs game last night is Kyrie. Kyrie is a wonderful player, but he's not particularly adept at making his teammates better and generating better shots for them. He's not terrible at it, but he's not particularly good at it. And it makes it harder to evaluate point guards because I still use the old mentality, but there are guys that have succeeded in a little bit of a different way. I mean, the best way to put it is that I think there is a ceiling on point guards who can't consistently score in the NBA right now. Just the pressure that being able to both score and distribute puts on a defense, and you see it from the wing position as well, like wings who can both shoot the ball and distribute are crazy valuable right now in the NBA. Point guards who can both handle the ball, act as a primary facilitator for uh, you know their teammates, and also drive to the rim, pull up from anywhere on the floor. The pressure it puts on the defense in terms of spacing the floor, I mean, your defender of the point guard, who may be at a wing, be it the actual point guard, has to get right up on him at the point of attack in a way that it spaces the floor that way. I know that there's been, and you and I have talked about this before, where we think Ben Simmons is going to be able to be a nice primary ball handler because it helps the floor spacing if you have him on ball. Uh, Same with Giannis. Giannis is improving as a shooter, but having him on ball really helps in terms of floor spacing. It helps even more if those guys can shoot, and I think that that's kind of the uh, difference we're seeing in today's NBA. Teams have realized letting your point guard just go I mean that is that is a crazy way to put pressure on defenses one of the hardest things to defend in the NBA is a pull-up jumper from a guy who can dribble because Stephen Curry Stephen Curry Damian Lillard CJ McCollum's doing a better job of this because I mean, you even can't... even Russell Westbrook the fact that he can legit just stop on a dime like nothing and hit a mid-range jumper from like 12 to 14 feet that's incredibly valuable even like not even just the three pointers and you know outside of 18 feet just the ability to stop on a dime and pull up it's unguardable in the NBA and the reason it's unguardable is because it takes away one of the ways that teams choose to defend because you can't have that sliding space. You Because when, when the player is in that mesh point on the screen, you can't have it be like, oh, fight through it. Because if you fight through it, the guy's already shot the ball. Yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see their, the, th- the three top point guards. And, and Frank also, I guess this is true for him. I just don't know his game well enough to speak to it. But if any of them can thread that needle and be that guy on top of all of their other skills, that they'll be special. They'll be a great NBA player. Yeah. I think that, you know, Markel Fultz and Dennis Smith are great examples of this. Both those guys are shooting well off the dribble this year and uh, have proven themselves adept, but Fultz is pretty clearly the best at it. I think he's just so good at putting pressure on the defense in the way that Lonzo ball had to be up on him or else it was going up every single time. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, there are two plays in the first half where, Fultz just, you know, lazily came around a screen, like wasn't even accelerating or anything. And Ball kind of followed his, you know, lead in terms of attitude. It was a little bit lazy defensively, but Fultz just pulled up from three and it went right in the hoop. Like it was, it was like lightning quick and it was 
difficult to defend. I mean, those guys are incredibly valuable. And, you know, it's kind of why that uh, I consider someone like James Harden, even though Fultz isn't going to get to the rim and isn't going to get to the uh, foul line as much as Harden does. The closest guy that I can think of, and maybe Brandon Roy is another really good example of this, but I think that Fultz might be a little bit better of a passer than Roy was. These kind of guys that can just both attack and distribute and score, they're incredibly valuable. And I think that uh, Fultz is a great example of this. He's kind of like if you hybrided uh, Harden and Brandon Roy almost. It's an interesting comparison, especially considering I brought up the John Wall parts of his game earlier, and those are all three different guys, and I think Fultz has elements of each one of them. And also, he has the athleticism to be mm-hmm. uh, a solid defender, if not better, and that is an even... <laughs> uh, that's that's a, a nice thing on top of everything else. Like, I, I don't think it's the most important element of the modern point guard, but it helps. I mean, look at Chris Paul. Chris Paul is one of the most valuable players in the NBA because he is an excellent orchestrator of an offense, but he's also his team's best perimeter defender. Demolishes at the point of attack. I mean, that's what Chris Paul has done best for years upon years now. And here's what I'll say about Fultz. Until he actually starts defending, I don't think he's going to be a good defender. Like he, he Is just this, is this no the idea. Andrew Wiggins problem? Like we, we need to stop thinking about guys who can defend as guys who will defend? Well, Wiggins, I think, was even better defensively in college than Markel Fultz's. Fultz, part of its situation, like he, you know, I'm okay saying that he doesn't really care defensively right now. I mean, he gets back in transition if he thinks that he can get a highlight level block. He gets up in some guy's face if he thinks he can get a steal. It's always about going for the ball instead of cutting off penetration or cutting off a transition play. It's not energy and effort and motor related. It is. I can get the ball and score related. And I think those guys are always disappointing defenders based on those tools. We'll see if it works out. I mean, like you said, he's like 6'4", 6'5", with a 6'10", wingspan, crazy athlete, really good laterally. There's a lot to like about his profile defensively. It's just he lopes around. (laughs) I haven't ever seen him defend really at any level of basketball. So we'll see, you know, maybe, but I don't think that you should be expecting. Right. And I'm excited to to see if he could work in a switch-heavy system because sometimes that works well for guys that can wax and wane because then all you have to it's a, it's more engaging, it's more interesting, and the responsibilities are often they're different, but I think they're more manageable for a lot of guys. Some players just hate it; it's 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 uncomfortable for them. But with his length and kind of shakiness in that way, I think it could work out pretty well for him. Yeah, I mean, worse comes to worse, because he's so big and because he's so long, it's going to be easier to hide him defensively. Like, even if you don't play him in a switch-heavy system, I think it's going to be easier to hide him defensively. But if you do play him in the switch-heavy system, I think it's interesting. Uh, maybe, like, having to focus on that will keep him a bit more engaged, or maybe it will just lead to constant defensive breakdown, because he's not all that engaged. We'll see. These guys go one way or the other, and I would like to hope that Fultz will go the right way, but we'll see. I got frustrated at points during that Washington-UCLA game because the defenses both teams were deploying just make it really hard to evaluate talent. <laughs> it's the same issue that you that college football analysts have to deal with with the spread offense of, you know, like, how do we tell who's good? How do we tell who can do a lot of different things? And because the goal of a college coach is to win college basketball games. It is not to make their players the best NBA guys possible, other than in the marginal way that sometimes that allows them to get better recruits like Calipari has done. I mean, even I think Washington's trying to do that, to be honest, like they're just telling these kids, 
Yeah, we'll let you play. Whatever people say about us, we might not win games. We're going to let you play. I mean, I think that that's probably a significant aspect of their recruiting process. And it's awful. Uh, they don't really have any sort of defensive structure. And it's makes it almost impossible to watch a Washington game from a scouting perspective against a real offensive team. Like if they play a UCLA, if they play a Gonzaga, if they play like even the TCU games earlier this year where Jamie Dixon is one of the best offensive minds in college basketball. Like it was impossible to watch those games even, I thought, because you just knew that there was not going to be any sort of defensive structure. They were going to get down early and it was just never going to be able to like they were never going to be able to get back into it and make it competitive. So it's difficult to watch this Washington team. I'm very disappointed. You know, it'll be fun watching Michael Porter there next year because like Markel Fultz being a late riser into that number one spot, it does seem like Michael Porter is very clearly the best player in high school basketball now and will be projected to be the number one overall pick next year too. Uh, but at the same point, and that ties in with what you were just saying, Markel Fultz is still the best player on the board, theoretically. I mean, he's not the best player for fit for every team, but I think he's the number one guy on the 2017 draft board at the moment. Yeah, yes. I think that if you would poll 20 general managers or 20 like executives in the NBA right now, probably get 17 saying that he's number one. Something in that range, probably like something between 75 and 85% of people would say Fultz. You'd get a few like stray Lonzo Ball answers, I'm sure. Maybe you would get a couple of Josh Jacksons or Jason Tatums, even though Tatum hasn't been very good. He just has a lot of believers in college basketball. So Fultz is clearly number one on the board, I think. People are trying to make it a race. And, you know, it only takes one team. It only takes one general manager. So in that capacity, maybe it might be a race a little bit. But like I said, I think if you would ask 75% of general managers, you'd come back with Fultz. The biggest reason for me why Fultz is number one and why I have him in a tier separate right now, and I admit that I haven't watched a ton of everybody else, why I have him in a tier separate from everybody else is that he has a higher floor than a lot of other guys. And I think he also has a higher ceiling. He's just better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So like, I could see circumstances where Josh Jackson doesn't succeed, where Alonzo Ball doesn't succeed, where Dennis Smith right. doesn't succeed. There right. are those paths for Fultz, but there are fewer and further between. So I'm okay. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. You're even seeing like, what is his worst case? Like a slightly more athletic D'Angelo Russell? D'Angelo Russell is going to be a starting level NBA point guard. So if you give me a slightly more athletic Russell, I'm fine with that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, Fultz's floor is high. His ceiling is high. His basketball ability is high. Even if he never defends, he's going to be one of those guys who you can trust to create offense for you just because he's so creative, but he's also so polished and mature in the moves that he is making. He knows exactly where he wants to get on the floor and can get there. Like, it's nothing. Like, he just understands innately how to get to the spot on the floor he needs to get to to create an efficient shot. He reminds me of Moutier, but with more capability of being able to actually put the ball in the basket. And well, yeah, he's Moutier, a better athlete if, and a better shooter. Yeah, if Moutier had that, he would not be going through the struggles that he is right now. And I still I still believe in Moutier long term, but yeah, I, I am lower on his ceiling just because the longer it takes for somebody to become a, a force that defenses have to deal with in that sort of offensive way, the more I worry about the Ricky Rubio path where being a talented passer is not enough. And Rubio is a way better defender than Moutier is right now and probably will ever be. Yeah. 
I think that's probably fair. I think I trust Moutier's shot and his ability to finish the rim a little bit more than Rubio. Sure. But on the defensive end... That's a low bar. (laughs) No, I know it is. But like Ricky Rubio's carved out a role and Rubio's obviously a way better passer, a way better defender, like you said. But if like Emmanuel Moutier's ceiling is Ricky Rubio... That's not necessarily great for, and maybe it's okay for the number seven overall pick. It's probably average value long term if you look at it that way, but it's also not exactly what you're hoping for either. I think it's fair to say. So I know you just released a new a new draft board for the Sporting News, and your number two is different from a lot of people's, and it's Josh Jackson, who we both have seen, but you've seen a lot more of than I have. What makes him the best of that next group to you? I think it's that floor that you talk about with Markel Fultz. There is no circumstance where I don't see Josh Jackson as a starter in the NBA. He's too good of an athlete. His motor runs way too high. He makes winning plays constantly every time that he has the ball in his hands. He's making the right decision with it. Defensively, I think he has all NBA potential. Right now, he's going through some struggles in college basketball. I think that, and I'm not like certain of this by any means, but he ran into some foul trouble early in the year. And if you watch him defensively now, he's playing a bit more tentative. Like, Sometimes he won't close out like with his hand up for fear of fouling on a jump shot or he won't necessarily like try and just do that little move where you get your hand in right after a ball gets passed to a player just to kind of knock him off his, his rhythm a little bit. So I think he's being a little bit more passive defensively than I've seen him play before. But when he wants to get down and defend, he'll get down and defend the jump shot off the catch has shown signs of improvement. Uh, he's, I think, right around the 50th percentile now, according to Synergy. So not a disaster. He still can't shoot off the move. He's still a terrible foul shooter. But if he can knock down catch-and-shoot threes and he can be that level elite defensive defensive player, as well as being a terrific passer, a guy who can straight-line drive past anyone, that's an incredibly valuable player. I think that worst comes to worst, you get a starter and, you know, best-case scenario, he is the only player to be averaging 15 like six and three is a freshman since Dwayne Wade in a high major conference. So I I think that he's not Wade ceiling, but he's that kind of productive player who also gets it done on the defensive end. Those guys are rare. He also can do it for, at a position of value. Wade is Wade is a two guard, which is also incredibly valuable. But to to be able to be a reliable defender, probably at the three and the four. That's my read on it right Even now. The two. He's going to be able to guard twos. So maybe the idea with him is similar to Michael K. Gilchrist, where he is your worst or second worst offensive player and is your best or second best defensive player. That totally works from a perimeter perspective. It's different, but you can make it work from a coaching perspective. Well, wings are generally just different in terms of the way you build them on your team, right? Like you want to find wings who are two-way wings who can produce for you essentially. And Josh Jackson does that. I mean, if you can find, I think two-way wings are probably the most valuable players in the NBA right now. I mean, maybe you could like convince me that if you find a unicorn like Joel Embiid, that that kind of guy is the most valuable player type, but two-way wings among player types that are actually found consistently, those guys are the most valuable because they can affect the game in the highest degree of ways. You can use them as weak side shot blockers. You can run them out on the best perimeter player on the opposing team defensively. You can uh, rely on them to score and get their own basket. Like That's just ridiculously valuable in today's modern NBA. And 
Josh Jackson is going to be able to do those things, I think. I mean, the positional scarcity aspect of it certainly plays in, although I think that while there are a lot of high-level point guards, backup point guard is not necessarily the strongest position, but NBA coaches are looking for wings every which way they can find them right now. And, you know, it's making me consider guys even further down the board like Sindarius Thornwell and pretty much anyone that's six foot five and shooting 35% or more from three is considered a draft prospect now. So, uh, yeah, Josh Jackson is a stud and I'm a huge fan. Other than, I think the way that I would classify it is other than stars, two-way wings are the most valuable thing in the league. Because a star anywhere is is really valuable. You know, Steph Curry... Porzingis, you know, those type of guys. But outside of that, and it look, and you could just tell that by the contracts that these guys are getting. I mean, Harrison Barnes mm-hmm. got his full maximum. Otto Porter's probably going to get really close to that. Contavious Caldwell-Pope is probably going to get close to that. Yep. And those guys are getting, well, because due to the due to the individual maximum salaries, those guys are getting star money, despite not being that, almost entirely due to scarcity. Yeah, I'm interested to hear your thought on this like i think that even among stars that if you can find a two-way wing that level of star is more valuable than other types of stars unless you're talking like just stephen curry breaking basketball but like i think all things being equal two-way wing stars are probably more valuable than any other type of star it's certainly arguable it, when, once you get into that category though i think it's more about the quality of player if we're talking like within a tier, like like the idea of tiers as we were talking about early on, within a tier, yes. But t- stars are just they're like snowflakes. They're very, they're so different that it gets yeah. specific. But LeBron is one of the most valuable players in NBA history because he could do everything and do it at a position that was rare and and that gives you the kind of switching because if you had a guy with LeBron's skill set who was well, I guess if he was seven foot and had LeBron's physical attributes, then it would be fine. But other than that, from a pragmatic perspective, so a player yes. who's who's a player who's smaller or larger is going to have weaknesses that LeBron didn't have, and that made him more versatile. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Yeah, Giannis is the bigger version of LeBron, right? Like, not necessarily quite as explosive athletically. Not necessarily, you know. I, I guess that Giannis is just worse overall than LeBron, and it's probably not comparable. But like, I, I think that's kind of what happens when you get into that being like six eleven. Like, you just it's difficult to retain that level of athleticism. Even Kevin Durant isn't necessarily the most explosive athlete. He's just like hyper long and, you know, freaky, fluid and coordinated. Right. And the benefit also of being able to handle the workload at the three when you're bigger than that is is another tactical advantage. Like Durant probably should be a power forward for a lot of other reasons, at least defensively. But I understand why he has stayed at the three. And I think it's given his career longevity in a way that would be harder to do at power forward. It parallels the issues that New Orleans is dealing with with Anthony Davis. I was just about to bring that up. Uh, you look at all of the moves that New Orleans has made over the last like three years, getting Omer Oshik, re-signing Alexis Aginsa, trying to sign Donatus Motoyunas, signing Terrence Jones. Like I think that all of these moves are clearly to try and find a five. You know, the consistent rumors about Greg Monroe, the rumors about Jaleel Okafor this week. Like all of these guys are true fives so that they can play Davis the four. I think it's probably because you know, I don't know this for a fact, but he's probably gone to the organization and said, like, I want to play the four. I think that it'll 
give my career a bit more longevity instead of banging with fives constantly. And I don't think it's a crazy aspect of this. I think that, you know, if you can play him at the four in the regular season and grind out enough wins to where you can get a respectable seed, then playing playing him at the five in the playoffs is probably valuable to extending his career as well as maximizing his talent level. The Warriors are the template on this right now. The Warriors' best center is their power forward. And they have centers on their roster. They have too many centers, though they thankfully cut one of them. The whole purpose of that really is to buy minutes for Draymond Green later on. That really is the point of David West and the point of Zaza Pachulia. And the challenge for any team is that the Warriors are able to do that because they are so good. They can afford to step away from their best lineups for for more than like 35, 40 minutes a game because their second and third best lineups can still win a bunch of games. It's harder to make that case when you have Alvin Gentry, who's coaching for his job, GMs that are GMing for their jobs, and that long Pull game... Pull out all of New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, sure. That long game is a lot more tenable when your team right. has other All-Stars. So I get I get the pressure that is that is on New Orleans, and the reason that I was critical of the Jaleel Okafor possibility was not due to the idea of taking Davis away, though I did throw out some stats about how good their defense has been, which is important to me because that's a part of this story. But my idea for this is always that you want to have a person who fills that role, who so basically they're if they're going to be the like a guy in the in the main part of the regular season rotation, then a little bit marginalized in the playoffs, who actually fits strengths and weaknesses with that star. And Jaleel Okafor does not fit with Anthony Davis. He doesn't cure what ails them. I agree with that on some level based on what we've seen of Okafor so far. I think that I'm still just generally a believer in Jaleel Okafor on some level. Like, I, I think that he is an incredibly talented basketball player who I understand the concerns people have defensively, but I also think that uh, he hasn't really had a true offseason yet to get really into shape and maybe potentially add some quickness. And then uh, with a seven foot five wingspan, like, you can imagine him at least becoming a uh, deterrent at the rim, if not a rim protector. So, like, I think that if you're going to try and buy into a guy's skill set like that, I mean, Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday are the two perfect guys to insulate that skill set while he continues to learn. But the problem is, well, I guess that on some level, it probably helps them to bring in a 21-year-old Okafor now versus potentially drafting a 2018 rookie and hoping that he can coalesce quickly around Anthony Davis. You're building for Anthony Davis. You are trying to maximize his years. If you think Okafor is that guy, okay. If you think that Davis and Drew and Buddy Heald can work together to insulate Davis, I think that makes sense, or insulate Okafor. I think that makes sense too, but I guess that On the other hand, I'm thinking it more from the player's perspective in the case of Okafor and not from the team perspective of the fact that New Orleans has been considerably better this year when Davis has played center. I mean, they've been like the third best team in the NBA defensively since they made that move to him starting at center. So it's a tricky nut to crack whenever your star doesn't really want to play center and it's clearly your best lineup. But I think that They're going to have to play totally differently with Okafor, but if they bring the best out of Okafor, it creates a different ceiling as well, I guess. Does that make sense in a way? It it, it does. Okafor's touch offensively is special, 
and I like him as a passer. My concern with it is more what it does to Davis and Holiday. I mean, the defensive issues are there. I'm not. There is the potential that he can be better than he was. Than he was, and the odds are high he he's going to be terrible defensively for his whole career. I mean, right. let's just be honest. Right, right, right. So, but offensively, I had Dan Feldman was the first person I heard float the idea of them getting Myers Leonard. This was before Myers Leonard got overpaid, but. Mm-hmm. Leonard is not good defensively either, but at least he gives them space. So the the idea basically being that if Davis doesn't want to play center, that's fine. But you don't want to do anything that jacks up the spacing that you get by having Davis at the five. So essentially what you're doing with that is you're recreating the wheel by basically just putting the spokes in a different place. And that makes Davis happy because he's not doing the, he's not getting that workload, but you're basically, instead it's, it's subbing functionally Mirza Toledovic or somebody like that for Myers Leonard. And so what you're essentially advocating is that the Pelicans should trade for Brooke Lopez. In a way. Sure. I mean, Lopez is scary in his own way because he's, I believe, 29 and has yeah. a lot of foot stuff. But as an archetype perspective, what you're looking for is a player who doesn't screw up what you've already been doing well offensively. And then defensively, yeah, you know, there, there are always going to be ramifications of it. But Jaleel Kafour is shooting 35% on jumpers this year. The, the part that worries me more than his defense is that he settles way too much offensively. And that's a lot harder to fix from my experience. You know, the idea of changing a guy's expectations of his own offense, it's possible. It's not, I'm not writing him off, but it's hard. And so like, Gentry's going to have to do that. I guess that I'm just like writing off this season for Okafor. Like he came into it injured, didn't get a training camp or anything. Well, you want to then... know my dark idea on that? Yeah, go so, ahead. The idea there is that trading for Okafor, is, because there there's this angle that's out there that's been reported, and I totally believe this is the, the Pelicans' intention, that they want to get better and that they think that getting Jaleel Okafor helps. The dark interpretation of this is identical to the Lakers, which is that by going wholeheartedly after an idea that actually makes them worse or not much better in the short term, they're securing their long-term goals inadvertently. So the idea being that adding Jaleel Okafor and starting him and having him close games, which they would do if they trade a first-round pick for him, is going to make the Pelicans worse and is going to help them have a good draft pick this year, even though that is not the reason they're making the trade. Yeah, I think that's an interesting aspect of all of this as well. Yeah, I mean, if they started and closed with Okafor, it would be a disaster this year. Like I said, I I don't think he's in great shape. I think that the knee was an issue early in the year. I don't know if it still is, but I do think it hindered the way that he got into shape coming into the year, and I think that it hindered the rest of his season. So how do you deal with that? Um, That's a good question, and I don't really know. Your way of thinking about it is probably a little bit sound, but the problem with that is that if you're Dell Demps making the decision and this trade results in you getting worse, well, you're probably not making the draft pick in June. So uh, I'm not entirely sure that that's going through their mind entirely, right? No, no. I think they're they're intending it to be the other way, just like the Lakers getting Timofey Mozgov and Waldeng was intended to be there. They're going to be the difference makers that make us relevant. And they weren't. And so the Lakers ended up where they should have been in the first place, just with a lot of bad money on their books. Yeah, no, I think that that's basically the best way to think about it. Yeah, in terms of Okafor, I'm still a believer, regardless of the way that the rest of this season goes. I will probably still be a believer. He's a disaster right now. Uh, he was, he might have been. For, I honestly don't. I can't think of a player that I've been more disappointed in this season. 
as a basketball player. Like I thought that he'd be pretty good, but you know, he lost his position. I think he's probably disappointed in that he, you know, isn't playing well defensively and I can continue to make excuses, but it's probably do you, do you think that falling you, on deaf ears at this changing, stage. Changing teams, especially if he goes to a coach like Alvin Gentry, could help energize him both now and eventually, you know, just to, yeah. to, make, to, to realize I need to do a lot more work to get to where I need to be. Yeah, I'm absolutely a wholehearted believer in that. I think that so many players in the NBA are positional oriented. We'll see uh, if it works out. We'll see if it doesn't work out. I'm not. 100% sure on this by any means, but I, I do think that it's possible that, you know, a change of scenery, if you want to call it that, can absolutely uh, energize a team. And, you know, another thing here is that, you know, Darren Ehrman is a guy that's been relatively known as a really smart defensive mind. You know, he's there in New Orleans, and I think that could potentially work out as well. It could. Wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about Movement Watches, a sponsor that I'm a big fan of, not only because I love their products. I have the 40 series rose gold and brown leather one myself, and it's a, just a beautiful timepiece, but also because I love their story. And Movement Watches, which is MVMT, started as two college friends who really liked high-end, high-end accessories, high-end clothing, and were able to actually make something themselves because the prices were too high. And so they made something themselves and use a completely different model to get it to you. And that's the reason why they can produce really high-end watches that if you were getting them at a department store, it'd be 400 to 500 bucks, but you can get them starting at $95. And the reason for that is because they don't use any middlemen. They use the same excellent high quality products, but they can get it to you without a lot of the other things that raise the price. And so beautiful construction. I mean, you can see it from the watches there. I can tell you from the one that I have. They're just absolutely gorgeous. And you can go to movementwatches.com. So that's mvmtwatches.com slash realgm. And if you go through it that way, you get 15% off, including free returns and free shipping. You can check it out. They have a ton of different styles, both in terms of the faces and the bands. And you can find something that works for you. I have a very particular look that I really like. And the rose gold black or brown leather was absolutely in line with what I wanted. So I was thrilled with that. I'm completely confident that you will find something as well. The price point is great, especially for the quality of the materials. And if you want to get it for somebody as a gift, if you want to get it for yourself as a gift, I support it in, in all of those forms. So again, it's mvmtwatches.com slash real GM, and you can join the movement. We will transition back into the draft. Well, there's another sidetrack that we're going to do later on. We've already discussed it. But to get back in, I think I think where I wanted to go is what point guards are in this next tier and how you have them ordered right now. It's all very team based, I think. Like if I'm the 76ers, Lonzo Ball is second on my board. If I am the Boston Celtics, I think it gets trickier. Uh, if I am the New York Knicks, Dennis Smith is second on my board. It's so team oriented because I think that like these teams need specific players. And, you know, if you're Phoenix and you end up with number two, what do you do then? Because that is just a mess for them uh, because they have Eric Bledsoe already. And he's a really good basketball player who's taken the leap this year. And maybe you want to keep trying to build around him. Maybe they trade him at the deadline. I don't really know. But I go Dennis Smith in a vacuum as my second best point guard in this draft. I think that you could even make an argument that his ceiling might be a touch higher than Markel Fultz's just because he is 
as you and Nate call it on the Dunk Dom podcast, he is a nuclear athlete. Like in every way, shape, phrase of the word, he is a hyper elite athlete who first step explosiveness toward the rim. He's in the 75th percentile finishing at the rim, despite being six foot two with a six, three wingspan. He is, you know, just able to create his shot on a dime. He's an unbelievable passer. He's one of, I think he's the only player this year with multiple 15 assists games in college basketball can go out and drop 30 for you. He is a willing defender when he wants to care and get into passing lane. So the ceiling on Dennis Smith for me is what does it like. He is just a crazy, crazy potential basketball player. You've heard my Mario Hazonia, J.R. Smith comparison, right? Yeah. So basically the idea that why I liked Hazonia was that J- that he was another shot at J.R. Smith. And I believe that Smith got to somewhere at that time in the 50 to 60 percentile of his potential outcomes. And since winning the finals, being a great part of that team has moved up considerably since then. And what Hazonia reminded is that there's a lot in that 50% below. And so he's been there. Smith is not quite at the level of Russell Westbrook as a physical specimen, a couple different reasons, but he is in many ways another bite at that apple. The difference is that Russell Westbrook is in the 95 plus part of his potential outcomes and Smith will have to deal with a very different world. Yeah, I mean, Russell Westbrook, you might be able to make the argument that he's the greatest athlete that's ever entered the NBA. Like just in terms of like physical explosiveness and quickness and everything, like that's not crazy, right? I would put LeBron over him and a couple others, but not many. Man, like it's close for me, man. Like the stuff that Russ does is wild. I mean, I remember LeBron when he was younger and he could do some similar stuff, but I don't think there's a whole lot of space there. You know what I mean? I think that's fair. It's it's certain. I'm not I'm not rejecting it out of hand to be sure. Yeah, but like that's the kind of athlete you're talking about. And I think it's probably unfair to expect any other player uh, as a draft prospect to get to that level. Because if you don't remember, like for our listeners, like Russell Westbrook, he was derided when he was selected fourth overall because it was he was a guy who averaged like 10 points a game, was the Pac-12 defensive player of the year. He was a freak athlete, but didn't really have a whole lot of other stuff to his game. He's filled out, become stronger, become even more physically explosive and incredible in the open floor and in the closed floor, quote unquote, the half court settings. He's just turned into the biggest freak that is in the NBA right now. And to expect Dennis Smith to do that, that's probably a little bit unfair. I've been using like the Steve Francis comparison for him. Like Steve Francis, when he was young, was this crazy athlete who I think that we can probably say, given the way that his post-playing career has gone, might have had some demons while he was playing and flamed out relatively quickly. But if you end up being Steve Francis and can last 10 years in the NBA, that's you know, maybe not a potential Hall of Famer, but pretty close. Smith has also encouraged, has been encouraging that he has looked like a more complete offensive player, especially over the last few weeks, had a, a not really nice game against Duke. I was impressed with him there. And he's actually been the best free throw shooter, I believe, of the three point guards that most people have as the top three. He's been a pretty underrated shooter this year, I think. That's kind of a just a generalization, but he's not been a terrible shooter. I think he's up around like 38% from three. Uh, he's 45th percentile off the dribble, 65th percentile off of the catch. Like that's pretty solid overall in terms of jump shooting. As long as that continues to develop, he's unguardable in today's NBA. Uh, if he is a 
60th, 50th percentile jump shooter and can hit 37% of his three pointers unguardable in today's NBA because he's so fast, so athletic, so quick. He's just able to put the pressure on defenses like we were talking about at the top of the show in a way that I don't think anyone else in this draft at their peak other than maybe Markel Fultz can. I think that's all fair. I I don't have any real opposition to that. I wonder a little bit about his ability to create for others, which is an incredibly important element of successful point guard, primary ball handler, whatever you want to call it, play. But he can provide value even if that doesn't come all the way. Steve Francis is actually an apt parallel in that way. You know, Francis was never the alpha and the omega offensively that, that his physical abilities indicated he could be. But he was still a valuable player that helped his team win. By the way, we're talking about like questioning Dennis Smith's playmaking ability, and I agree that 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 might be the most questionable part of his offensive package. He's averaging like eight point eight assists per forty minutes in conference this year. Like in yeah, the and ACC, that's once he's gotten outrageous. once he's gotten his teammates back more to the level that we expected at the beginning of the year. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know that I really have a ton of concern. Maybe the jump shot, like I said, like maybe he ends up being a. 35th percentile jump shooter among NBA players instead of a 60th percentile jump shooter. But yeah, I mean, he is just unbelievable. Like his worst case might be a slightly better shooting like Reggie Jackson, maybe like he's not as long and not as long and like not they're different players. But uh, Reggie Jackson had multiple years where he was a top, what, 18 point guard in the NBA, right? Something like that. That puts it about right. Yeah, like I, I don't want to say he was like a top half point guard, but he was like right in that next tier. If that's your worst case scenario where you are just a nuclear athlete and can get where you want on the floor and, you know, by all means, I, I'm in on you, man. Like you can. You I, I can also be- have, I have to note that Jay Billis, I believe, has the trademark on that, but it's still Nate and I use it a fair amount. But it's it, it's amazing with Dennis that he is the best athlete by far of this three and he's also the smallest because a lot of times just the nature of freaks of freaks, even at the point guard position, we've seen those guys be a little bit bigger like Derrick Rose or Russ. Have one, Having one who's a little bit on the smaller side is exciting. Yeah, it's going to make for fun uh, dunk contests for sure because, oh boy, should he be in the dunk contest next year. If it is him, Derrick Jones, Terrence Ferguson, and, you know, someone else, maybe even Aaron Gordon, if Aaron Gordon wins or loses this year, that has potential to be one of the best dunk contests ever. And I'm not exaggerating. I am excited that we are finally getting to the area where the NBA is okay with having a guy who does not have an NBA profile being in the dunk contest, because I am still residually angry that that was not true for James White, who would have revolutionized the dunk contest if he had been able to be in it when he was at his prime, as opposed to when he was older. Yeah. Like, do we have odds yet on the dunk contest? Like, I want to keep quiet in terms of like talking up Derek Jones too much. I don't want odds makers to like, you know, odds makers are smarter than I am, but like, I don't want them to like fully get the gist of, you know, just how crazy Derek Jones is. Like, I want to get good odds on Derek Jones come Saturday and All-Star weekend. Patrick McCaw has been talking about for a while. So I've been, I've already been hearing it for a little while and I, I see bits and pieces of it from time to time and he's ridiculous. I am still, again, a little bit residually mad that Aaron Gordon didn't win last year because he could have actually wrote a piece for those who are interested at the Sporting News the night at, the morning after. I was so angry that I wrote a piece about how they should fix the dunk contest. I haven't gone back and reread it, and I know they're not going to do any of it. <laughs> there, 
But let's get let's get into guys who are are athletic talents in their own way. You and I have had Jonathan Isaac and Jason Tatum together since we saw him, since we saw them at the Hoop Summit last year, yeah. and I think you probably had them together beforehand. Tatum has disappointed this year overall. Isaac probably is not. I think he's been. I haven't. I haven't had any opposition to what he's I think done. He's probably exceeded expectations a little bit. From what you can tell, has that shift been reflected by what you've been hearing in terms of front offices and buzz? We're starting to get there, I think, where people consider them equals. But you got to kind of understand here, for many, Jason Tatum was the number one overall prospect coming into the year. It was him and Markel Fultz were probably the two guys that I heard most in terms of potential to be number one overall pick. Like I've heard from multiple people who think that like Jason Tatum could lead the league in scoring one day. I don't really see that. Like I've even told you this, like at Hoop Summit, you know, I didn't like I got it with Jason Tatum. Like, I think he's going to be a starting caliber NBA player, but he settles so often. It's frustrating, isn't it? He reminds me a lot of a better Aaron Gordon, and that is a good thing in many ways and a bad thing in a couple. And that is one of them. Yeah, like he settles a lot. And the thing that's concerned me most this year is that he doesn't really understand what the defense is doing to take away his skill set, right? Like he has his mind made up what he's going to do on every single play. And once the deep, if the defense reacts quick enough to stop it, he doesn't really have a plan B that is efficient yet. Like he, he passes poorly at this. Like he's, I don't want to say he's a poor passer because he can make plays for teammates, but he makes poor decisions a little bit more often than you would like to see. He makes just, bad pull-up decisions regularly as well, which can essentially act as turnovers. I've just been disappointed in his basketball IQ this year, and it's been really impressive defensively. I think he's way better than I expected defensively. Offensively, there have been some questions, and like I, I keep saying this to everyone just so like people understand that when I am discussing the negatives of Jason Tatum, we're still talking about a kid that's averaging 21 points, nine rebounds, two and a half assists, two steals, and two blocks per 40 minutes. Like, that is outrageously good. And I think that he is going to be a very, very good NBA player and could even end up being like a steal if he's taken at number seven or number six or number five even. There are concerns, though, that are starting to flash themselves. And I just hope that he continues to develop after he gets through playing like 15 college basketball games. You said Isaac has exceeded expectations. How do you think that he's done that? I mean, we're, we were both big fans from moving forward. And then another question I had, I, 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 we, you could separate these if you want to talk about them separately, is we talked a couple months ago about the idea that while Tatum and Isaac are both small forward slash power forward guys, that the nature of the positional scarcity now means that unlike in prior years, they'll probably slide down as opposed to sliding up. In terms of sliding up and down positions with Jason Tatum and Jonathan Isaac in terms of positional scarcity, that's an interesting concept. But I think more than anything, like the NBA needs small ball fours and needs guys who can play the three. Like, I don't really think they're going to slide up or down. Like, I think that they're just going to play the position they play. You know what I mean? Like, I, I understand what your point is, and I think that it's a valid one, certainly. But I, I think that they're probably just going to do what they do. They're going to be matchup nightmares at the four. They are going to be able to play the three. But, like, 
even just having those guys who can do both, those guys are needed in today's NBA. Like I know that you need threes just as much as you need twos and probably a little bit more than fours, but those guys still have immaculate value, I think. Agreed. And teams will be able to figure it out. You can fit them with a lot of different players in the front court. And the answer might be that they're neither, that they just go where it's needed. And the idea of positions can be outmoded, especially if the league is moving more towards switching. And both those guys, I think, can do a good enough job switching, maybe not onto ones. I don't think I trust either of them there, but at least onto twos. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about Jason Tatum a little bit here, but Jonathan Isaac I've been incredibly impressed with him defensively. I mean, uh, as of the time that I did my big board, he was the only player in the last like eight or nine years of college basketball to be averaging a 64% true shooting percentage, 25 defensive rebounding rate, eight block rate, I think, maybe six block rate, and two and a half steal rate. I mean, it just shows the versatility of his game. He's a playmaker defensively. He makes terrific rotations. He's a great team player. You can trust him to do whatever you need to defensively. That's the last place I'm worried about him. He is going to be awesome on that end. That helps his value a lot too. Like, I do. You, I I like to. I've seen a little bit of him as a weak side shot blocker, and he's not perfect at that. He's not obviously Anthony Davis, but I think he can do it opportune uh, when the opportunity arises. For sure. I mean, Notre Dame found out how he blocked seven of their shots uh, in that one game. Like it was in like Notre Dame, super undersized. And that stuff's going to happen whenever you're playing a hyper athletic team like Florida State. But man, like he really can get you on that weak side and he can just send that thing packing. He is a really good weak side shot blocker. And the thing is, like we're talking about a guy who's going to play the three, four that has a nine foot plus standing reach. Like typically those guys are even if they're smaller centers, they're centers, you know, like he has the size to be a true weak side shot blocker in the NBA. It's so exciting to have a few of those guys come into the league because they have so much value. And also they lead to more watchable basketball because they take the place of players who are more limited. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that I've talked to you about before, and I don't even remember if it was on the show or not, the thing that I am interested in with him maybe is the potential for him to be a like a small ball five at some stage oh that would be so much fun oh man you could get yeah if you could get a small ball five jonathan isaac going that would be tremendous you probably do that against second units because so many teams playing i I wouldn't want him to like guard valanchunas even though he would ruin him offensively just because the idea the idea of putting that wear and tear on him but for spot moments it'd be fantastic well valanchunas would like make him cry yeah, like he's just so strong and so powerful. I mean, it wouldn't even be fun for him. But having said that, uh, yeah, I mean, Jonathan Isaac might play him off the floor, <laughs> which is something that teams have been trying to do against the Raptors at, at various moments. And also why we talked about how Davis doesn't like playing the five. Well, Marcus Aldridge is also hurting his team is too strong, but he is hurting their creative flexibility by not playing much at center. Yeah, I agree with that 100 percent. And I think that going back to Toronto, uh, Nate keeps bringing up the idea of a like Solinger Ross Powell and a first round pick trade for Paul Millsap. If Atlanta just decides to sell, Uh, I think he's gotten like a little bit of pushback from Toronto people who don't want to do that. Like from just reading his Twitter mentions the night that he posted that. I think it's a fantastic idea. If I was Toronto, I would definitely try and do that. I like it too. And there's a version of it that was in the uh, mock trade deadline podcast that is coming out in pieces over this week. And 
Millsap gives them the ability to do some really, really cool stuff, because especially if they keep Patterson, because then the questions that they have at the four and the five get resolved in kind of a weird way, but a way that would work even against good teams, not perfectly, but well enough that they could still score a ton of points and stay competitive on that end. Yeah, I will say this. I think that my assumption, not my assumption, but I think that they're more likely to go for Ibaka just because of the Ujiri connection there. Also uh, because the price is going to be a lot lower. The price is going to be lower. There's the connection there. I think that Ibaka might be more willing to re-sign with Masai, maybe at a, like a slight discount versus a costing full price. And then maybe they think that, yeah, you don't want to pay Serge Ibaka's next contract for four years, but if we can get him at a discount, it's a little bit better. Yeah, I think that that is going to be what ends up going down. If you made me guess, and that has no inside information, but I, I think that the dots connect there. They do. And I wonder, it's a little bit unfortunate that th- at least this year, and you would have a better idea for 2018, that the way to send Boston into that real championship contender group is to give them one of those transformative players. And they might just have these Brooklyn picks at the wrong time where Jalen Brown is, is a good player. He's done well for them. Even if they got Markel, I like Markel a lot, but he's not, I don't think he's in the Anthony Davis class and we'll see for next year. And of course, there's also the variance on what happens with that pick. And that's the risk of the draft. You know, you never know who's going to turn out great. And those superstar players, the top, the MVP candidates are really hard to find. So do you want to know something funny about the 2018 draft class? Sure. So Markel Fultz is 18.6 years old, right? Mm Mm-hmm. DeAndre Ayton is 18.5 years old. Yep. old. Mo Bamba is 18.7. Michael Porter is 18.6. Trevon Duvall is 18.5. Lonnie Walker is 18.1. They're all basically uh, Markel Fultz's age because they're all like playing up a little bit. So basically, That's, it's like a legalized Shabazz Muhammading? I don't want to say... Well, Shabazz was two years, wasn't he? I think he was. Yeah. like, But it is... Uh, it's Josh Jacksoning, certainly. <laughs> People Josh, forget that Josh. Josh forget, turns, he turns nineteen pretty soon, right? People forget that Josh Jackson is older than Spee. Yeah, Josh Jackson turns twenty like this month. God, so he's old. Yeah, Josh is February of ninety-seven. Uh, Devin Booker. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Josh Jackson and Devin Booker are less than four months apart. Yeah, that, that's pretty hilarious, isn't it? And it matters. You know, it's not the biggest thing in the world, but it, it gives you an idea of how they're competing. And it, ma- I think it matters more in college and evaluation than it does in terms of the pros. Yes, that's absolutely true. Like Devin Booker was really good for Kentucky at a young age. And I think that it was also a reason that like people were a little bit more willing to iron out some of his questions coming into the NBA. And obviously, I mean, for the number 13 overall pick, the Suns could not have asked for more than Devin Booker. I mean, that's going to end up being terrific value. With Josh Jackson, I think that you need a more finished product coming into the NBA. Luckily, I think he is that, though. Like, I think he is a relatively finished player. That's true. Going to take a quick moment out of talking to Sam Vecini to tell you about our friends at Audible. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of different guys kind of around this. Do you have all of the people we've discussed, so Tatum, Isaac, Dennis, Lonzo, in the same tier, or do you have a separation between them? I I think they're all in the same tier. Uh, I think that they are all the, you know, two through six tier. And honestly, have we really even talked about Lonzo? Not really. We can talk about him more. Yeah, I mean, he's awesome. By the fact that I have him at number five, like, 
The only reason I did that is because it's kind of difficult for me to wrap my mind in a vacuum around a lot of these players. Like I think Lonzo ball is going to be a little bit more of a situational player in some ways. Like you need to get him in an up-tempo scheme where he's able to uh, really just kind of roll and you have to just let him do his thing and, you know, get up and down the floor and get everyone involved. The concerns are there. I mean, the jump shot, he's going to be that we've talked so much about like how, being a great pull-up shooter puts pressure on a defense. I think that there are questions as to whether or not his pull-up jump shot is going to be able to put pressure on a defense. The one thing that he does that is interesting to me, and it's something that Jeff Goodman put to me uh, on my podcast that I found really interesting. The way that he said it was is that unlike guys like Rajon Rondo and even like Russell Westbrook, these guys like pound the ball regularly and they look for passes. Even Eric Bledsoe does it uh, a decent amount. Lonzo never pounds the ball. He just keeps it moving around the perimeter regardless. And I think that that's underrated him a little bit. We're back to my thoughts, not Goodman's thoughts. I think that that has underrated his athleticism a little bit because people just kind of say that, you know, he's like an okay athlete. He is, you know, maybe going to struggle to get some penetration. I think that when he puts his head down and really wants to get penetration, he does it well. And I think as he continues to have his body fill out, he's going to get stronger on the ball. Sometimes you can see him get ripped a little bit by smaller defenders who are just kind of pestering the ball in his hands. But I think as he fills out, he's going to get faster. He's going to get stronger and he's going to be able to get into the lane with ease. It's just not his game. Like he wants to keep the ball moving and get shots at the rim or get shots from the perimeter. And he doesn't care how it happens. That's a great point. And what I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks with Lonzo is that he is going to benefit so much from having better teammates around him. I mean, UCLA has great offense, but having, ask his dad. Yeah. So I was thinking about him with, let's say, JaVale McGee. And JaVale McGee, flawed, <laughs> flawed but imperfect player. But I think Lonzo would do an amazing thing because he would know where he can get the ball. He can read it ahead yeah. of time and just throw it there. And so Lonzo with better teammates is going to be a game changer. And so he he is a player, we talked about you know who would fit with the Celtics, that the better his surrounding talent, the better he's going to look. He's an amplifier. And it's, it's amazing how your better teammates player is JaVale McGee. But a lot of that is because he can amplify McGee. It's not so much yes, that, but... that McGee makes him better, it's that he can amplify it. But, but what concerns me about Ball at the same point is that the NBA also leads to much better opponents. Yeah. And so for some players, the improvement in teammates matters more. We talked about how point guard is largely a talent distribution p- standpoint, but having a counterpart that does a much better job of stopping you from what you want to do can really derail players. Jared Sollinger is a good example of this for me. Sollinger, Adam Morrison, Frank Kaminsky, that they're not bad players, but they couldn't create the seams that they could in the college because everybody's better. It's like in the NFL with linebackers. You know, the linebackers are so much faster that you can't pull some of the stuff that you did in college. No, I agree. With Lonzo, I don't think that the way he spaces the floor in college is going to be as effective in the NBA because of how far back the three-point line is. Like, is he just going to pull from Rockets range off the dribble? Like, do we think that that's efficient offense for him? Like, Not, not that's right a- now. Yeah, that's essentially what he's going to have to do. Like he's going to have to the way that he spaces the floor now for people that are unaware is that he takes three pointers that are like five feet behind the college basketball line. 
And that's really valuable. It showcases his range to scouts. It showcases it really helps the team in terms of spacing the floor because people have to get out and guard him further away from the basket. That's going to be if he tries to do that in the NBA, it's going to be a less efficient shot because he's going to be at 29 feet as opposed to 24, 25. So I'll be interested to see if that works. I'll be interested to see if he is able to just be a 29 foot three point shooter. And if he can do that, it's going to really help them space the floor. But that's one way that he's kind of breaking defenses in college basketball that I'm not sure will be as effective in the NBA, just because he's going to really have to up floor spacing of his jump shot, I guess. And if he doesn't do that, it's a it stays kind of where he is right now. Not only does it hurt the the offense because teams don't have to get it, or teams are already going to be out there, but his shot, if the player is up on him, is more easily blockable just because of the release. So, yeah, and I mean that's a big part of why he has to take those jump shots too. Like, yeah, it helps space the floor, but also like he just generally has to take that shot so far back because his jump shot has the low release point. Right. So I think that he's he's imperfect. He's beauty in the eye of the beholder and all of that. But he makes so many good plays on a successful team. And as long as he doesn't end up somewhere like the Sacramento equivalent, I don't think he'll end up on the Kings just because of the pick. But somewhere that just is consistently has under has too little talent, he'll be fine. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, he's going to really need to uh, end up on... A competent team, I guess, would be the way to put it. Sacramento, probably not the best fit. Orlando, I think, would be a worry, too. Like, just the way that the pieces on that roster fit together. He might really help them, because he might be able to actually bring a bit of floor spacing at the point guard position. But, like, I don't know how great I'd feel about that. Same with, like, New Orleans. New Orleans doesn't really have a ton of floor spacers. Like, that might not work out ideally for him, either. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So, that's what I mean by, like, the fact that... When I have him at five, I mean, I just went off on like the negatives of Lonzo's game. Lonzo's incredible. This guy is just meant to play basketball. Like some guys, you know, they're six foot five and they can shoot a little bit and they're athletic. Like, yeah, they they were going to be able to play sports in some way and make money. And like they were always going to be these tremendous athletes. They just picked basketball. Lonzo Ball was put on this earth to play basketball. You just see the way that he reads the game and the way that he understands angles, the way, like just the innate way that his mind ticks and the innate pace that he plays with. This guy was put on earth to dribble a basketball and get it to his teammates. He is unbelievable. Sometimes you need to just be negative and be realistic about a guy's weaknesses. And I don't mean to be overly negative, but you do need to be critical about where a guy's shortcomings are so that you can find a way to smooth them out once they get to the NBA. I, I have so many different thoughts on him, and I, so much of it is going to depend on where the lottery turns out and just hoping that the right teams are in the right place because, yeah, Orlando, I hadn't thought too much about it, but that would be a, a shaky fit right now. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens moving yeah. forward. And I wish there were more teams in the top end of, like, more weird pick, tr- pick swaps and pick trades just to have talented teams there because that would reduce the chance of failure but Mm -hmm. you're never going to avoid that all the way so do that and also i wonder how teams are if a team is going to say like in the more conventional sense hey we drafted lonzo ball he is our point guard he is going to run our offense and defend ones full time versus a team that says he is a really good basketball player we're going to use him in the way that makes sense yeah, and I think that that has a good chance to happen as well. Like you might just see a team just say, 
yeah, sure, we're going to go for it. You're going to play off the ball some, like if Philly drafted him. Like Philly would play him off the ball some. They'd play him on the ball some. They'd rely on him to space the floor. He'd basically just be a connector, though, for Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And I think he'd probably be the best possible connector for those two players. Yeah, I can't think of a better one in this draft. Because he, so, yeah. he can do well on ball and well off ball, but it's not perfect either way. But he would be great just to have another guy who's comfortable with the ball in transition. And it would buy them, we've talked before about the creative flexibility of the Sixers' other guys, that you could do a lot with him. Well, it's just the unselfishness, too. Like, he is a guy that is not going to care if he doesn't have the ball. You know, like, he is totally fine moving the ball along, you know, entry pass to Embiid, maybe giving the ball to Ben Simmons at the high post and letting him operate, dishing out a cross-court three to Robert Covington. Like, he's going to be totally fine as long as the team is winning if he can, you know, just be a part of that. So I think that plays a big role in it as well whenever you have two potentially high-usage guys like Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. That they are. <laughs> they are they're high-usage guys. And I like that fit, and then you figure out the other thing better than them getting Isaac or Tatum because that fit is still a little bit weird to me. Yeah, I think that Philly's best possible draft, if you made me say right now. So they get the Lakers pick, um, they get their own pick, and they end up with Lonzo Ball and Malik Monk. I think that's probably their best case scenario. Plus, if they ended up with those two, very likely one of them doesn't end up being starter quality. Big whoop. The other guy comes off the bench. Yeah, and I mean, they would really help space the floor for Embiid and Simmons. They would really help, like I said, just creating connectors on the floor, creating spacing on the floor. They would really help the offense. Lonzo Ball is a good team defender. He's not a great one-on-one defender, not great at the point of attack, but he's going to be a solid team defender. He's going to be very switchable. Malik Monk, he'd be able to throw on ones, which is the biggest concern of his game right now, other than maybe if he is like this crazy hyper elite shooter that he's shown to be so far. Yeah, like if you can throw Malik Monk on ones, that takes away so many concerns within his game. Monk is the guy that I want to talk about next. Do you have him? Because I, I believe he's he's seventh on your board, right? He is. Is he a dividing line in that sense, or do you have him kind of with the other guys? I have him in the tier below. I think that he is number seven pretty solidly in my brain right now. The concern with him is he has to be the hyper elite shooter that he has shown himself to be so far. Because, and I just wrote about him at Vice. You should go read that because uh, I wrote like 1,500 words on him. And I think that they're all very interesting, every single last one. But I think that more than that, I would say that he is, doesn't bring enough other things to the table. Like elite shooters often bring a lot of other things to the table. Malik Monk, he's taken 10% of his half court shots at the rim. That's remarkably low. Not a great defender. Has a 12% assist rate, so not a great passer for a two. Doesn't really have a super tight handle. I think he can develop that, but it's still not quite there yet. Really good transition player, but the marginal efficiency of a good transition player to a bad transition player is pretty low. I like what Malik Monk does, but who are like who are his comps to me? Like they're J.R. Smith. They are, you know, to a lesser extent, Ray Allen. Those guys were all way taller and way young, like way longer than Malik Monk is. And I think it's going to be difficult for him to just consistently get his shot off in an efficient manner. Buddy Heald is probably an example of the idea that you're getting at, which is that it's the shooter only problem. Would you say that's fair? Yes. I think I honestly had a little bit more 
confidence in Buddy's defense translating. Buddy also was bigger, so you could say that he was a straight two, whereas Monk could have trouble guarding shooting guards. Yes, I would agree with that. Like, there's also a chance that Malik Monk is this hyper elite shooter and is going to be a superstar. Right. Like that that potential outcome can't be ignored. Like he really just might be this yeah. good. And the, if he's the, the this good, he's a superstar. The difference between him and Jonathan Isaac or Dennis Smith is the likelihood of success, not the ceiling. Right. The difference between those two is that neither of those players are going to get a general manager fired. Malik Monk is going to get a general manager fired for either passing on him or selecting him. I just don't know which one it's going to be yet. I said that about about Dante Exum a few years ago. And and we'll see if it happens. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Utah did well enough to insulate around him to where they don't need him to be successful. You have as good a team as they do, then it makes it takes the sting out of it if he ends up disappointing. Then again, though, like if they lose Gordon Hayward this summer for whatever reason, they do really need him. They need him anyway. They need a backup point guard. And he's yeah. not perfect, but he would certainly help. And and Exum at his most basic actually fits with what they need from a backup one, assuming they do it like, if they're ever healthy, which they haven't been a stagger with Rodney Hood and, and Gordon Hayward, because all of their wings pretty much can initiate offense in various ways. Joe Johnson can initiate offense too. It's a very different kind of offense, but he can do it. And so that means you can have a point guard who plays more off ball and just defends zealously. Exum hasn't been able to put that together. And why George Hill is so perfect there is he can be successful offensively in a larger role or a smaller role. Man, how sad is Utah going to be if they lose both Hill, Hayward and Hill? Like I think after it's more this likely awesome they keep year. both than to lose both. No, I agree with you. I think it is too. But this is going to be like a 50-win team. And man, would it be really sad if they lost? Well, especially especially guys. if they end up with the four seed and lose to the Warriors, because that there's no shame at that. You know, I, I could see that series going six or maybe even seven games if they're fully healthy, which they haven't been basically at all. Yeah. Hayward, I got, I wish I could be in his head because he is maybe the the like one of the lower end players, and yes, he's an all star and he deserves to be an all star who could really swing the future of the league. Like usually, you know, a top five guy changing teams always does. You're never going to be able to over oversell that. Like Kevin Durant changing teams, LeBron changing teams, all those sorts of things. But like all-star, like the lower end all-star guys, like the non-no-doubters don't usually make that same thing unless they go to a team with another star or something else. But Hayward, especially especially because if he leaves, I assume he'd be leaving for Boston. That totally changes the, the fortunes of two different franchises that both are talented. I mean, the crazy one that I've been trying to figure out a way to like make it happen just within my brain somehow would be Houston because they're going to have like, you know, what, like 16 million, 18 million in cap space. If assuming they just like stretch brewer or something, if they can get rid of like one more guy and add well, they, Gordon well, Hayward, that'd be they, gross. They're, the parallel there for them is, is to when the Warriors added Iguodala. So exactly. you, they don't have that much bad salary. They can just move some dudes yeah. and they could, they could make it happen Especially if Gordon Hayward doesn't make an All-NBA. Well, actually, it doesn't matter if he makes an All-NBA team because they'd be a new franchise. So they wouldn't have to deal with that anyway. If Utah has to deal with that aspect of this thing, it really hurts them because I like Gordon Hayward. He's not worth that. Like, he's just not worth the Supermax. But I think that if he does make an All-NBA team, there's going to be an expectation that they offer it. Or at least a portion of it. Maybe not the whole thing, because they don't have you don't have to go all the way to 35. You could go to 32 right. or something like that. Right. Like we saw with Damian Lillard, whenever he took the like 
used to be Supermax, the Rose Rule, I guess. Um, he only took part of it, not all of it. Yeah, the Hayward situation is going to be really interesting just because if he does get there, that just like hinders Utah's finances. Like that that's not a high major like supermarket well, it, team. It, like it, it hinders it in the sense that the luxury tax is something that's probably untenable for them long term. It doesn't actually impact their ability to get better that much because they already agreed with Gobert, but from a practical pragmatic perspective it does. Right, that's what I mean. Like these supermax deals like I think that a lot of them were to actually help these small market teams retain players, right? Like Sacramento retaining Boogie. It's going to hinder them, I think, more than anything. Like it's good. the fact that they're going to be expected to pay two hundred million dollars over five years for a player, or one hundred and eighty million dollars over five years for a player. There are very few guys in the in the league that are worth that. And the fact that they're going to have to start paying it out to a singular asset, it creates a whole lot of variance if that guy gets hurt. And it's going to be a whole lot of dead money if that guy gets hurt. And it's going to be very dangerous, I think, for those teams to hand out those deals. It just so happens that a lot of those players are also on teams that have trouble getting free agents in the first place. So could see a lot more talented guys on islands because the NBA moved in the about the farthest they could in the opposite direction of where they were from the prior CBA, partially for a good reason, which was that in the last CBA, they basically nuked the value of extensions. And so that meant that every player was assessing the financial sacrifice of staying versus going in the immediate. So that it's not like Kevin Durant had to say, I'm going to be a free agent in a year or I can extend now for more money. Durant had it at the same time. And actually, since he was going to sign a one-year contract, it didn't make a difference because they didn't have the expanded max at that point and everything else. So that was where the decision was. Now you have to compare leaving money on the table and doing it a year in the future and all of the risk that is involved there versus staying. And a lot of the places where that is going to happen by signing that player, they're basically signing their mediocrity papers for as long as that player is on that team. Now, some of them will probably be signed to those deals and then trade it. I think that's what's going to happen with DeMarcus Cousins. I am not sure if that's going to happen with Paul George, but all NBA first. Right. So we'll have to we'll have to see with some of that stuff, but it is a fascinating question in terms of what the residual effects and in this case, I do not believe that it is unintended consequences. I think these are fully intended consequences. It's just that they could be more severe than were anticipated. Well, I think that the greater severity kind of is an unintended consequence, right? I think they thought about it. Interesting. Okay. I, I'm not completely I think sure. That- I haven't talked to anybody who was in the room where it happened, but it's my instinct. I think that the owners were very focused on keeping BRI equal. And once that happened, they were tenable to kind of doing what the players wanted and were, were willing to give concessions where necessary, I guess. But that said, I am happier to see guys get these 35% max yes. deals earlier in their career as opposed to later, because as as Nate Duncan has brought up numerous times, and he's completely right, it makes no sense to have the, to have the 35% only be for 10 plus guys, because those contracts are almost always bad at the end. It's the same with baseball. Baseball has a significant problem with the way they structure contracts because of the uh, like six years of team control rule. You're just able to keep costs down for young players. So easily that it totally creates a problem in terms of like money allocation to actual talent versus like actual talent. And the new system will really help teams that draft well, which is good. You want to incentivize that. But 
I don't think the league benefits from having talented players in messed up organizations that just because they can pay them more. And the way that they overly restricted what teams are eligible to sign guys to these extensions, that might be the the unintended consequence of this. Because now it really changes the way those guys are valued by a second team. So now if a player is identified as being a good talent in their fifth or sixth year, it's very different to acquire them than it would have been in in another in another world because you just don't have this option available to you. And you could say, oh, well, that option was never available in the first place, but it does affect it. Yeah, it absolutely does. We'll see the way this goes down. I'm optimistic in some ways, but I am also concerned in others. I want like to see the if most guys, wishy-washy thing, but it's uh, also true. What I want to see is if there are players in the next two years that get talented players that get moved in their third or fourth year with the idea of getting them in before this matters. Because doing what happened with James Harden, of course, James Harden is part of the inspiration for this rule. Doing it in that way, as opposed to trading them in year five or year six, so that because the team can basically say, hey, look, look at this extra value. If they end up being super awesome, you can you can retain them for longer than you could have before. Yeah. Can I make one yeah. small CBA complaint thing, too? Please do. Is it the thing you told me about last night? No, but I, I'm actually going to do a separate podcast on that uh, for Lockdown Warriors, probably. But so the idea that they didn't that they still have such a narrow rule for extending players and their salary based on their prior year salary. So, one of the big issues with the yeah. CBA was that players like Stephen Curry could not extend because the jump in their salary was too large. So they fixed that a little bit, but they didn't fix it for players that are cheap for other reasons. And so like for me basically the way that I would have it work is if you are going to have full bird rights on a player at the end of that contract, you should be able to sign them to a contract that is allowable under full bird rights. Because the example here would probably be somebody like Chandler Parsons. So Chandler Parsons, if they had had a, a fixed extension rule, could have just extended with the Rockets. And the Rockets then are getting the full benefit of drafting super well, getting Chandler Parsons, a good player in the second round, and having, you know, so, so they get him cheaper. Maybe you don't have, and, and also I would have it be more flexible in terms of renegotiations and extensions just to, just in case for some of those teams. But who is hurt by that? Who is hurt by having a system where when a, a player is undervalued, but that team has full bird rights, that they have the ability to retain them by paying them a value so they don't have to hit free agency? Yeah, I'm trying to kind of figure out if I think there could be some sort like what the reasoning would be. Like, would it be that there could be some sort of collusion concerned there? It could be, but I'll I'll let you in on on an example that could end up being a big problem here. So Nikola Jokic was a second round pick. Oh, boy. Nikola Jokic is awesome and is in the second year of his contract. He has a four year contract, but like a smart team, the Nuggets structured it's that the fourth year is a team option. The reason they did that is because exactly the same as Chandler Parsons, though that didn't work out for the Rockets, if they let him play out his four-year contract, then he is an unrestricted free agent at the end of it. However, if they decline the team option, he is restricted, so they could theoretically match. So it is a risk-premium issue. My point is, that is an unfair decision for a team to have to make if the team and the player can separately come together on a contract. Why are they getting punished because their second round pick is better when another team doesn't have to deal with that same thing. 
Yeah, like Jokic is a pretty obvious example because the Nuggets are just going to decline that fourth year and extend him to the max, right? There are not going to be any issues from the Nuggets giving him the zero to six max. Like we can just assume that, right? But they lose out on a year of because because he's so much better, they lose out on a year of him being cheap and they could have figured it out a different way. Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to do that would be for just saying like in the CBA for second round picks, you need to for, for four year contracts given to second round picks, they're still restricted free agents. No, like, well, I, I disagree with that. Rule. I don't think they should do that. I think I like the three plus four year rule. What I'm saying is that they should just fix the extension rules so that you allow those yeah. players, you allow those players to be extended and then you don't have to deal with free agency at all. Yeah. I mean, you could do it that way too, for sure. I just get annoyed with the structure of the second round because I think it's a farce. In it is general. a farce. Absolutely. You know, I've written about it in the past, like the second round of the draft, and it's going to change a little bit, I think, with two-way contracts. Although, do you have an understanding of the way that's going to work? Because I read a portion of it and it said like you might have to release the player first and then sign them to a two-way contract. I have not gone through that yet. I've, I, Due to my other obligations, I have not spent as much time with the CBA as I expected to early on. And two-way contracts are something that I've kind of put on the back burner a little bit just because yeah. I know it won't be relevant for me. I focus more on the things that are relevant for free agency because that's going to come up more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not even certain that this is a thing, but I, I think that like it might be a thing where you have to release the player first i'm not positive on that though let's talk- but if you have to do that that's ridiculous yeah want to take a quick moment to tell you about zip recruiter it used to be that posting a job was a challenge because you wanted to make sure that it got in front of the best quality candidates and now you can do that with one click with zip recruiter because they post to 200 plus job sites including social media networks like facebook and twitter all with a single click and you can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide you just post it once and watch the candidates roll in I can testify to the quality of ZipRecruiter as a potential employee, not as an employer, but I mean, I I can certainly trust that it is similarly excellent on that end. And another great thing about ZipRecruiter is that you can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person through their interface. You don't have to deal with a, a barrage of emails or anything else like that. And you can find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by more than 1 million businesses. Also, very cool thing, I always like it when the promotional part of this is free, doesn't require any, any, any cost from you, you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan, and any listener to this can post jobs for free. So you can post jobs for free, see if you enjoy it. Again, that is ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. You can check it out. So we talked about Malik Monk a little bit. Let's talk about his backcourt partner. Is there anything that De'Aaron Fox has really done to change his perception, or is he pretty much what we thought he was? No, he's exactly what we thought he was. He's really good at everything on a basketball floor outside of shooting. Would you have really you have him over Frank right now? Would you? How how close is that decision for you? I honestly just need to see more of Frank in a highly competitive setting. Yeah, I want to watch some of that the, FIBA footage for sure. I'm going to watch some of that in the next couple weeks. Yeah, like I've I've seen all of that. Uh, I've seen a few of his games with Strasbourg. I just need to see a little bit more of it where he is playing the one traditionally because he's not really doing that for Strasbourg and creating consistently. He did that at FIBA. He did it against U18 guys. I will just be interested to see what happens when he comes to the States and declares. And uh, he's not going to match up against anyone, obviously, because he's a top 10 pick, but he is going to get in front of NBA scouts. And I think that that will help me. I I think their information that they have on him will help me inform how high or low I have him because realistically, he could be in that tier above. Um, I think that that could totally be accurate. 
But I do think that there is a bit of a concern in terms of, is he a hyper elite athlete or is he a long athlete? And in terms of point guards, I want elite athletes versus long athletes. Yeah, that's true. It's it's a little bit different than some other spots. We don't have enough time to go through every other player, so I'm going to pick some that I'm interested in. Of course, you can share some of your own. Yes. What's going on with Harry Giles? You've probably watched as many minutes of Harry Giles as I have this year in terms of like being competitive, just because Duke is a fascinating story. I've seen pretty much all the minutes he's played, but he hasn't played many. No one knows. He could be anywhere from the eighth overall pick in this thing to the... 30th overall pick right now his his floor is pretty low in terms of where he could be selected we'll see he hasn't been great when he's been on the floor i think he's still very tentative i think that he is still not reacting well to what is happening around him because you know he hasn't played basketball in 16 months before now so we'll see i am neither optimistic nor concerned it's just a fact of the matter and we will need to see what happens once he gets more confidence in the knee because he's either irreparably damaged or he's just not playing well and we can't really know that right now it's so tough another guy who will be tough to evaluate og ananobi yeah so ananobi was a guy that i think was falling on draft boards before he had his mysterious knee injury that required surgery tom crean and indiana refused to tell us what exactly it was but he was a guy who's kind of falling because he was the same player he was last year he's an elite defender uh you know genuine potential all nba defensive team guy but the offense still isn't there he shoots the ball really far away from his body uh he's not a guy who's going to create much outside of posting up smaller players so i was thinking he was more of a top 20 pick than a lottery pick for sure but uh, now with the injury, I think he's more like in line with number 23 or so. It, it's hard to, to sell yourself on him. But like like Giles, I could see a team a little bit higher saying he has a higher ceiling than a lot of the players around. So why not roll the dice? Because they're so hard to find. Yes, I think that's possible. I'm very concerned about him being a two-way player, though. Like sure. I, I think he genuinely might be bigger Tony Allen. But he doesn't really have like Tony Allen's crazy ass junkyard mentality. Like he is quiet, soft spoken, works hard on his game, apparently. Like I think he would really genuinely be helped by returning because I trust that staff there to actually improve players and develop them. We've seen it with Victor Oladipo, Cody Zeller, quite a few other players who have gotten considerably better uh, at Indiana over the course of their careers. Someone like a Yogi Ferrell, even. I would be optimistic if he returned and decided to, you know, really improve his game by working in, uh, you know, the shortened off season that he will get. There are an absolute ton of, of centers in this, in the area from 12 to 25 in this draft. It seems to me like all of them are more likely than not rotation players rather than starters, but some of them inevitably will outperform their current projection and become starters. Who of that group do you really like and who of that group do you dislike? I think the two highest ceiling ones are Justin Patton and Robert Williams. That's why I have them 12 and 13 on my board right now, I believe. Patton is a like 6'11", 7-foot player with a 7'3 wingspan, really athletic, block shots, can pass reasonably well, finishes above the rim. Good player uh, who can shoot a little bit from beyond the arc as well. Williams is more of the bouncy athlete kind of guy, whereas Patton's like a floor runner and rim runner. Williams is a bouncy athlete who block shots 
crazy length, more of a defensive center who I think is going to be able to move in space and do some interesting things. Those two guys, I think, are the highest ceiling players, but they're also very far from reaching that ceiling. Like we're going to have to like see where they go from here because Justin Patton's playing without Maurice Watson. Robert Williams has no point guard to speak of at Texas A&M. We'll see. I wonder if Cody Zeller's success, because he's more of that forerunner type. I, I think he's been he's been successful for, in that spot for Charlotte. Whether that encourages teams to take the risk on somebody like Justin Patton, maybe that, that's an interesting concept. Uh, I think that you know another guy that's going to be like this is T.J. Leaf. Uh, I'm a little bit lower on T.J. Except Leaf that he's not a five. I, no, but he's you know I think that Cody was what like six six eleven seven foot with. Uh, like a negative wingspan. TJ Leafs like 6'10 with a 6'11 wingspan, almost a nine foot standing reach. He has a body to where his standing reach is a little bit better than his measurables are. But, yeah, but he's I mean, way better defensively than TJ or probably Justin that, Patton at this point. That's the biggest problem is that TJ Leafs is a disaster defensively. That's going to be an issue going forward for him. That's why I have him at like 25 or 26 on my board. Like I, I think that As he opposed is to Lowry, who, what, how would you compare those two, actually? That's, a, that's an interesting piece to clarify. TJ and Lowry? Yeah. Well, Lowry is better at everything on a basketball floor. <laughs> right. And that and that's what makes the difference between being a top top 10 pick and being a late first rounder. Yeah, like Lowry can shoot on the move better than any seven footer I've ever seen in my life. Just the way that he is able to get his feet set toward the basket and fluidly go up whenever his body is still in motion is unbelievable for a guy his size. Uh, his, his shot utility is the way I call it. Like, the ability to get shots off in a variety of ways, spot ups, pick and rolls as the ball handler. Like he occasionally goes around screens and pulls up for three pick and pop big man, you know, coming off of screens. They run him off of screens like he is just ridiculous in terms of the way that he can get his shot off and, you know, really score from anywhere on the floor. That's the difference between him and TJ Leaf. TJ Leaf is a set shooter that also has a decent post game and is good hands. And I think he's going to be able to carve out something of a niche. But but Lowry Markinen is just a freak in terms of the way he shoots the ball. Markinen, he's so, so talented offensively that I, I think you might even be worth it just to play him more than like low end rotation minutes, even at center, just because he's so good. But I, I have a little bit of trouble seeing how he's going to work out, but I don't doubt it. He's not a rim protector. He's never going to be a rim protector. He is kind of, I think the best case scenario for him is Cody Zeller defensively. He's probably not quite the explosive athlete that Zeller is, but he does have a really good frame. Like he is, if you see him in person, like he's a strong built kid for being like 19 years old. That at least makes you think he can body some guys up inside. Wingspan's going to be short, no doubt about that. But he's mobile. He moves really well on the perimeter. He can slide his feet. They like Arizona plays him at the three semi regularly because they played Deshaun Ristich at the five. There's a lot to like about Lowry. There are the concerns, and I get them. But like you're going to be able to play Lowry at the four and the five and probably be okay. The key is that you're going to have to surround him with another player. Like in terms of team building. He's going to be dependent on having the right type of player with him to be successful. It's true of a lot of guys in this class, but maybe more true with him than anybody but Lonzo. I think that that's probably true. And honestly, like he might, it might even be more true with him than Lonzo. Like Lonzo will just be successful. It's just like varying degrees of success. Marketing, I can see like, you know, being a bench player if 
you don't play them with the right kind of players. You know what I mean? That's a good point. So we did the last one of these. I think it was late, late in the year last year. Who has impressed you during that time? Patton for sure is one. He's taken a pretty big leap up the board. Uh, no doubt about that. Tyler Lydon is a guy that was kind of rough, I thought, early in the year. He's been really good recently. Uh, he's knocking down threes like crazy. Donovan Mitchell at Louisville. He's a guy I wrote about in the preseason. I talked to him at, it was funny, you were with me at Adidas Nations down here in Los Angeles. And we were thinking about going out for dinner or whatever. Like, I was like, yeah, I'm going to stay and talk to Donovan Mitchell. And then maybe I'll get back to you afterward. So Mitchell was like doing this after Adidas Nations ended and after everyone in the gym, but him had left. He was there for an hour and I was just waiting to talk to him for an hour. I watched his like entire shooting workout. This kid is a crazy hard worker. And while I was disappointed that I did not get, get to go out to dinner with you and Nate that night, it was re- just a cool story to be able to see this kid work his ass off and really like improve the thing that he was weakest at. And right now he's shooting 37% from three as one of the most athletic two guards in this class. So he's a guy that's really helped himself. He's like an analytics darling to where he has been, I think the eighth best player in the country, according to Ken Palm this year. It's great to see that. And the degree for, especially when we're talking about non elite physical talents, the difference that if you put in the time and put in the effort, not only for like one day with Dutus Nations when the luminous Sam Vecini is there, but just every day makes a huge difference. Well, like I'll say this. I mean, there's a reason he was the only one who stayed, <laughs> you know? A lot of guys that go to Adidas Nations, they take the Los Angeles vacation and hang out and are there to certainly impress and play and uh, hopefully work their way onto scouts' radars. But a lot of them do take it as a vacation. Mitchell did no such thing. His mom came out and was there with him and uh, was there to improve and there to really showcase himself and improve his game. So I will always root for kids like that. I really hope that Mitchell works out in the NBA, and I think he will. Kids that are that athletic, that defend like he does, that have the ability to shoot now, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with players like him, certainly. That's great to hear. Anybody else off the top of your head? John Collins, I think, would be the last guy I would mention at Wake Forest. He's been over 20 points uh, in his last six games during the time he's played like five NCAA tournament quality teams, so really high strength of schedule. Averaging over 10 rebounds in that time, too. He's essentially going 20 and 10 over the last six games and going you know, somewhat similar in his ACC play this year in terms of counting stats per game. He has been insane. He is, I think, fourth in the country in PER at nearly 35 right now six foot ten long arms 225 pounds he has like a brandon wright kind of game hmm. i think is the way to put it like a true rim runner good rebounding instincts but the body still needs to fill out really good touch around the rim but you can kind of see him get knocked off his place a little bit and he doesn't have the best defensive awareness around him yet like you know brandon sometimes especially when he was younger would like kind of get lost a little bit or you know just like not realize what was happening around him. He's gotten better since he's gotten older, but you'll see that with Collins a decent amount at Wake Forest. And he's definitely a reason that their defense isn't ideal, but he's also probably the biggest reason that their offense is 10th in the is in the top 10 in the country right now. We've gone on a little longer than I anticipated, so I'm going to open it to you. Do you want to talk about the last thing we were going to discuss or do you want to say or do you want to not? Am I am I allowed to curse on this podcast? I don't even know. I technically don't even know, but I would advise against it. Okay. What the F is Phil Jackson doing? <laughs> like, 
like, what is he doing? He's saying that like Kevin Ding has like this uh, article that he wrote, like basically killing Mello from Phil Jackson's perspective, basically right. And, like, what are you doing? You're trying to trade a guy. You're not only hurting his value, but you're just making yourself look like an idiot in the process. It's weird to me when you when you have this circumstance and we were talking before about it beforehand and my interpretation is that ego management and personality management is the part of being a gm that is the most analogous to being a coach it is not surprising that steve kerr is really good at that considering he was good at it as a gm and it's actually easier as a coach and and a lot of the ones that have bounced between so? the two what that it's easier as a coach than as a GM to deal with egos. I think it's easier to do it intelligently because you're with them in a very different way, but it's hard, but it's easier to fray. It's easier to fray the relationships, but GMs like that's all management, you know, like that's, that's, you know, it's, it, there's a separation that's different. It, yeah. it depends on the relationship though, to be sure. Well, I feel like you're, you're managing different types of egos. Like sure. as a coach, you're managing player egos, Whereas as a general manager, you're managing player egos to an extent, but you're also managing like front office egos, which are the intelligentsia egos, which can often be a little bit worse. They can be. Phil Jackson was widely considered to be a master at managing those, especially on very talented teams and especially with star players when he was a coach. That's part of what makes him one of the best coaches of all time. I expected him to struggle at some of the other elements of running a team. The CBA components, maybe some of the scouting things, just it's, it's a, that part of it is a very different world. Sure. I did not expect for him to have these kinds of problems, not just with Mello, but all the crap with LeBron James. Like when you are a team president and you part, you know that you are going to be in the room for every free agent negotiation, you probably shouldn't say anything to piss off the best player on the planet. Who everyone in the league looks up to. Right. And, and and somebody who will turn anything into a big thing. I, I don't mean that as a criticism of LeBron James necessarily, but it is just something you have to be aware of. Yeah, no, absolutely. All of this stuff that Phil Jackson has done, which, by the way, you talked about like how you thought that scouting would be an issue and how you thought that other factors would be an issue, CBA stuff particularly. Scouting-wise, he's actually done pretty well. Yeah. Like, he's found guys like Chris Stapps, Porzingis, obviously. He didn't find Chris Stapps, but like he made the decision to pull the trigger on him. You know, like Mindogas Kuzminskis. Aaron Gomez, Aaron Gomez. Kuzminskis. It's, it's, impre- it's really impressive. Yeah, like he's found some dudes. Then he goes out and signs Joakim Noah to the worst contract in the NBA. And then trades for Derrick Rose. Do you think... Here's a good question that I posed when the trade went down. I said that Jaron Grant will have more value to the Bulls than Derrick Rose will to the Knicks. Do you think that that will end up being the case? Probably not, but that's because I don't believe I don't believe that much in Grant. Rose, yeah, like I'm not even a huge Grant guy either. But Rose has I been think, pretty healthy. I think he's been solid this year. So do I. And and a big part of why I supported that trade for the Knicks, I got into a lot of arguments about this, is because the value of knowing what you have in Derrick Rose. I I actually like the trade more from the Bulls' perspective than most people did because I like Robin Lopez. Yep. But what I eventually grew to appreciate more, especially in like the first two weeks after that trade was made was the idea of not having to take the risk on a point guard right away because there wasn't anybody in last year's class that would have made sense. So you just have that year. If he's your guy, then great. You pay him a bunch of money. If he's not your guy, then you pay somebody else a bunch of money. They are in that boat still and getting him on a one-year contract made that a lot more workable. However, the downside of that trade 
was something that I also that that was also pretty apparent, which was it's great that you are moving away from this center who's making a fair amount of money. However, you have to make sure that you don't pay another center, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah, none of that made sense. Not none of like, it. If they if they had made the trade and not signed Noah, it would look great now. It really would. It would look awesome. Even if they start if they started O'Quinn at the one at the five, if they started because Porzingis presumably wasn't ready for that, I understand that. Or if they did a one year rental of whoever, you know, whoever really wanted that spot, they could have done it. Could have given Dwayne Deadman six million dollars. Sure. Like he's getting three. Could from have even the- could have even maybe gotten Deadman on some sort of partial guarantee or something for next year if you're paying him twice as much as the Spurs. I don't know. That would be an interesting question. I don't know what was on the table for him. But yeah, and they didn't do any of other than Brandon Jennings, which was a single year thing. I mean, that was a good signing. Very good signing. They didn't really do any value plays on veterans, which the Knicks can always do. Look at what Seth Curry. Seth Curry got a two year contract with the Mavericks yep. that is looking very good for them. Granted, Rick Carlisle does a great job of pulling the pulling those kind of guys and creating value, which I'm sure Seth knew and his agent knew. But the Knicks could have done that. They also had Langston Galloway. They had him. They had match rights on him and just went, Meh, we're going to let him go. Just like the Magic. The Magic let Dwayne Dedman out of his qualifying offer. Yeah. To be kind of to be nice and also because they filled his spot. But the Knicks had those possibilities that could have made them a deeper team. And that depth has been part of what burned them. But it all comes down to mellow in the sense that, I mean, it also comes down to screwing up the Noah contract because that now that whatever happens with mellow, that's still going to be on the books unless they can somehow get out of it. I mean, you so, genuinely have to stretch Noah after the season starts next year, right? You don't have to, but it should be considered. Cause yeah, it would be and, three years at that stage at, what is it? Uh, what are the numbers on that? It'd be like well, so then if, if they stretch him before, if they stretch him before next season, it would stretch over seven years. Oh yeah, it would because be five, it's, it's double, it's double plus, it's double plus one. Yeah, and and so yeah, I remember, but those things can change really quickly. I was expecting that the Lakers were going to stretch Nick Young, and then look at what happened there. So you know these things, these things can change. I don't. He is the exception that proves the rule, but Swaggy P can be many things, and. <laughs> But like Miami did a really good job in terms of getting guys on value deals. Like they went out and got Dion Waiters and James Johnson and, you know, even took a flyer on guys like Derek Williams and Wayne Ellington. Wayne Ellington's an interesting one because they got the second year guarantee or non guaranteed on him. Like they went out and did some interesting things. The Knicks didn't do any of that. And the Knicks got no future value from it. You know, that's that that was my approach. Why I said that the idea of like what Seth Curry did is because. This year was always less important than next year if you assume that you're building around Kristaps Porzingis, and the Knicks did exactly the opposite. They got a, they have a, a young, talented, raw-ish big man. Whether you, I mean Porzingis is good now, but he's going to be a crap ton, crap ton better in four years right. than he is right now. And said we're going to get all of these guys that are absolutely going to be worse every single year than the than they are right now, and it makes no sense. Nope. Except if you think of it from the perspective of we need to be as good as we can all the time, which also makes zero sense. Right? Yeah. No, I'm I'm not a fan of any of this. None of it makes any sense to me, to be honest. So, so this gets into the last question I was going to ask you. Obviously, there are a lot of pieces of this that we don't know. But if you had James Dolan's job, which would be fun for many reasons. Well, yeah, because I'd hire you. <laughs> they have the mutual. They have a mutual option for next year. No, do not accept the mutual option, Jim. That is exactly where I am as well. Because 
he, I mean, at the same point, he can't really burn the financial flexibility bridge because he already did. And he's been, they've been pretty good at identifying talent, but you can also just try to keep those other people in the room in the room. Yeah. Like for the, the next person, the funny thing is they're going to try and make another like big splash in terms of a name to be the general manager slash president instead of going out and hiring someone like Mike Zarin from Boston or something like that and hiring like a front office person who I think would actually do a really smart, fiscally savvy job keeping their cap sheet clean as well as scouting and making the right signings. They're not going to do any of that. They are just going to hire some big name. And the problem is, though, that I can't imagine said big name being worse than Phil Jackson. Well, except for Isaiah. I am not convinced that Isaiah would do a tangibly worse job than Phil Jackson. Because Isaiah drafted well, too. That's actually the weird parallel between those two, is that Isaiah drafted Ariza, he drafted Harkless, drafted a few other guys. Did did, did he? No, he wanted Harkless, he didn't get him. No, the Sixers got him, then traded him in the Vucevic trade, and then moved around. So yeah, that's... But yeah, it's, it's a real challenge for them. I wrote like three years ago that I, for real GM, that I wanted Daryl Morey to get a big market job. And the Knicks would have been perfect for that a year ago to really do that aggressive approach to maximize, to, to be vicious. And it would have been better under the old CBA. I mean, the Knicks completely misused the CBA when they had the opportunity. And now they're, they're kind of just sitting there and they're not going to get much future value for Melo either. Like, I mean, we dealt with this when, when we did the mock off season podcast that, the Knicks, in many ways, the, a lot of the moves that you're seeing are, are well, as possibilities, partially because he has that no trade, which they shouldn't have given him or given him less money, that they're more getting out of the contract than anything else. And that becomes less relevant when he gets closer to just being done with the contract. Yeah, that's why, like, this year, I really don't hate the idea of Chicago going after him. Like, I'm saying, like, right now, if Chicago would try and trade for him, I don't think it would well, be see, I don't like his. I don't like his fit with Jimmy. Oh, personally. I think it's a terrible fit. But Jimmy Butler's a little bit older for a guy that is considered, like, a younger superstar in the NBA. Like, he's 27 or 28 right now, I think. You have Dwayne Wade for two more years, probably. I don't think Dwayne's going to decline that option, do you? I'm not sure. Yeah, like, if it, yeah, so, if it happens, So Jimmy's it happens. 27, he'll turn 28 before next season. Yeah, so, like... And you have him for two more years after this one, I believe. You have Dwayne Wade for another year. You'd have Carmelo Anthony for another year. I would just go for it. I'd try and make a two-year run right now, build as much talent as I could. I would do something like Rajon Rondo, Nikola Mirotic, and their own pick, plus maybe the uh, Sacramento pick that looks unlikely to transfer right now. I think that that is a reasonable deal for Carmelo Anthony. You get a guy in Miritich who I think would fit reasonably well with Porzingis and the rest of their guys. I think you would get, you just dump Rajon Rondo. Like I would just cut him at that stage, eat the money that's owed to him or wait, you can't. Yeah, you can do that. That wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. He has a partial, he has a partial guarantee for next year, but you can either eat that in the coming year or you could stretch it, which is actually a reason why I would consider waiting a little bit. I don't know what his guarantee date is offhand, but you might want to wait a little bit just to know if that extra two million in space matters. Yeah. Teams don't do this enough, but just to see whether that makes a difference or not. Like there, one of I got very, I was very critical of the Minnesota Timberwolves because they stretched Kevin Martin, even though they ended up not using that cap space in in that year. So they they could have actually really helped their future flexibility. So it'd be great to wait a little bit, but it's not the biggest deal in the world. It's just $3 million in in, in a $102 million cap. Right. But regardless, like if you're Chicago there, to me, 
a deal like that makes sense for you. Even if the pieces don't fit particularly well, like they're not incredible together necessarily. I don't think you're going to be able to make a bigger splash than that really in free agency. Like they'd be sitting on something like $84 million, like around there, roundabouts there. The big thing is you have to trust whoever is running your front office that at that two year point to make the right decisions and whether that's Garpax or something else. But I agree with you in terms of the, that's an interesting idea because they wouldn't be sacrificing that much. Right. I, I think that that just is the more sensible thing. Like, I don't know if it'll happen. I don't know if Carmelo Anthony would want to go to Chicago. I think that there'd be a chance of it though, because the Wayne Wade would be there. And I think that that matters, but like, I don't know for sure that he'd want to do that. And I don't know for sure if they would be interested. I just think it's an interesting idea if you're trying to maximize these couple of years with Jimmy Butler. Like, I don't know how they're going to get a more premium talent than Carmelo Anthony in there, I guess. What would be really fun is if they agreed to that trade, like during, I mean, obviously it makes more sense. I agree with you to do it during this year, but if they did that around draft time, so that at that point, you know, maybe if the Bulls decide they want to tank for this season, but then they still... If if they hear that Wade opts in or whatever, that they have that door open in June, yeah. maybe even yeah. before July. Because I love the idea of making a tr- big trade like that that affects free agency right before free agency, whether it has to be consummated later or not. Yeah, so Rajon Rondo's contract is guaranteed on June 30th. Oh, God. But dra- a draft trade would work? Yep. So it would be like the perfect like timing for it if you kept Rondo's salary just on the books for matching purposes. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a fun one. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that that's, that's the like fit that I see for Melo. I, I get that like the Clippers want him. I don't really see the, I don't see why you would give up Carmelo Anthony if you're not getting something of actual value back, like Miritich in a first rounder, I guess. Yeah. I, I'm largely, I'm largely with you because unless you're really worried about not only him picking up his early termination option, but really worried about that being a bad contract, I, I think that it's, it's not the worst thing in the world to just let him expire. Yeah, exactly. And plus you at least stay like relatively relevant, relatively relevant. And it's not like he makes you so much better that he's going to cost you a good draft pick. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I am fully agreed with all of this. Yeah. It's a weird situation, obviously, but we'll see. We will. Uh, Anything else you want to discuss? No, I, uh, that's all I got. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Always a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Danny, anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time. You can read his excellent work at the Sporting News and various other outlets. He talked about his piece for Vice during the episode. You should definitely check that out. You can also follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E on Twitter. Really enjoyed talking with him, and it was fun to get a little bit more into the NBA, the Julia Okafor stuff, and to extend my thoughts because 140 characters is not always enough to talk about, to put in some of the nuance about what I wanted to say on, on Jaw and so many of the other things that are out there. And lots of fun to, to go in different directions with Real Jam Radio. I assume the next time I'm going to do a draft thing is shortly after the NCAA tournament because we'll have lots to talk about at that point, but you never know. I enjoy talking with Sam enough, and I do his Game Theory podcast with some frequency as well. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, you can reach out to me, NBA at gmail.com, or at DanielLaRue on Twitter. And my standard promise, and it's totally true, is that I read everything, respond to what I can. If you take the time to write it, I feel like I owe you at least the privilege of reading it. And I do consider it, and I try to respond, but that part of it can get a little bit slow because I have a lot of different irons in the fire now, as always. And if you want to support this show and really any others that you enjoy, you can go. You can subscribe, 
Download every episode. Those are big helps, especially on a weekly show like this. You can also leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choice. Especially great if it's iTunes. doesn't have to be, but whatever. And also, the, for this show, it's especially appreciated if you can check out our sponsors. Movement Watches. MVMTWatches.com slash RealGM. 15% off your first order, including free shipping and free returns. Audible. Audible.com slash now. And you can do a free month and get an audiobook. I'm such a huge fan of their product. I've gotten even more into it in the last year or so. But even before that, it's so much great material. I can't handle it all. I'm also busy, but I can't handle it all. And then ZipRecruiter, where you can post jobs for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-F-A-N. And also wanted to mention Sam's excellent podcast, the Game Theory Podcast. I pop on it periodically, but it's mostly about college basketball, and he has other more knowledgeable guests on that. We mostly talk about the CBA because we both like that, and you can check that out. And it is in a part of the CLNS radio family, which is this podcast is as well. You can check out the CLNS radio app and lots of great podcasts on there. It's a growing repertoire and they have an app so you can check out listen to the podcast there and i'm so thrilled to have been a part of it to continue to be a part of it as it is growing and bringing in so much excellent content so you can check that out as well we will have a new real gem radio episode next week and then we'll take a week off because i'm actually going on vacation so looking forward to that actually to have a little bit of time i'm still going to be working while i'm off but it'll be a little bit different so next week will be fun have a couple of guests in mind, have a, have a couple of feelers out, and it looks like that'll be a fun one. So you can always check check that out, look for it, and that's another great reason to subscribe because it will be out earlier in the week because I'm headed to New Orleans for All-Star. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.